Welcome to That's a Hard No, the podcast about learning to say no and set boundaries to live our best lives. I'm your host, Heather Drago. You may think because of this podcast that I'm a boundary setting expert, but I'm not. I'm an expert at struggling to set boundaries. But you know what? I'm working on it and it is getting easier. Follow along with me as I learn from fellow strugglers and experts so that you too can start saying no without feeling fear, guilt, or FOMO. Today is Joanna Hardis, LISWS, a cognitive behavioral therapist and anxiety specialist who focuses her practice on working with adults who have an anxiety disorder or OCD spectrum disorder. We're going to discuss the different kinds of barriers that may be preventing some of us from setting healthy boundaries and how to overcome them. Hi, Joanna. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Heather. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start with anxiety. Like, let's define it. What is it? Why do we feel it? You know, what triggers it? All those things. That is a great opener. Probably a a big question. A huge one. Yes. Let's just dive right in. Well, first of all, it is a, I mean, it is a core emotion. So we have to feel anxious. It is not something we want to get rid of because it keeps us safe. Mm -hmm. The problem is people don't have a very good relationship with anxiety. So... There is nothing wrong with being anxious, Mm -hmm. except people fear being anxious and they want to avoid being anxious. But it is really an important core emotion because really what it is, is fear and people fear being scared. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was relating with you earlier about when I first entered the workforce I felt anxious a lot. I was motivated by my fear of losing my job. And mm-hmm. I think that's why I worked so hard and learned so much and and excelled. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we really want to, and I'm a stickler for <laughs> words, I'm a stickler for definition. So bear with me. And if it no, gets too no much, worries. just cut me off. So, I mean, anxiety, when we talk about anxiety, what we're really talking about are those sensations that we, you know, part of it is those sensations that we feel. Mm-hmm. So when the pe- physical, yes, the, the, the tightness in the chest, the stomach. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is part of what, when we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about those physical sensations that are part of, you know, the fight or flight response. Another part of anxiety are the cognitions or the thoughts that people have mm-hmm. that that we can sort of broadly define as the worry. Okay. And then another part 
of the emotion of of it are the urges, which are the behaviors that go along with it. So it sounds like from your experience, when you felt that anxiety, it the urge was to work more, to you know, to learn more. Mm-hmm. For some people that might, you know, ha- they may respond differently to the anxiety. And they may say, you know, they may respond with, oh, my gosh, I I hate this feeling. I can't stand this feeling. I need to escape or I need to avoid or do whatever I can to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And then their behavior is avoiding Mm -hmm. or leaving Mm -hmm. or or doing something to make the feeling stop. Mm -hmm. And that can get problematic for a lot of people. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking about people I know who get kind of overwhelmed by anxiety. And I'm almost correlating it in my mind to to almost like the immune system. Like there's there's a certain level of where you want your immune system to respond to things to keep you well. But then there are people who have terrible allergies where it's like their immune system goes haywire and it's they're just overloaded. Is that a good correlation or is it? It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting one. So we know that some people have a predisposition, for instance, to an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. And so for those people, we may say that they would have, for instance, an allergy to uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So if they are in a situation where, you know, they're not sure of something or they're not in control or there's more uncertainty, that's going to feel more intolerable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they may react in a way that, you know, it it just feels worse. Mm -hmm. They may feel physical, you know, they may have more physical sensations and they may have less tolerance to stay in that situation and see it through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that may be someone who is more predisposed to developing an anxiety disorder. So where's the line between just normal anxiety and then disorder? That's a great question. So there is a professional or definition. And then I think there is a functional definition. And I don't know how much distinction there is between the two. If it's interrupt, if it's if it's interfering with your quality of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly a, a, when I am working with someone, there are profession, there's criteria that I have to look for in terms of you know, how many areas of life is this interfering? How many symptoms are they experiencing in how many domains of life and how problematic is it? But for anybody, I always want people to ask themselves, how impairing is this? Is this getting in the way of you achieving what's important to you? Is it moving you away from what's important Mm -hmm. or toward it? And, you know, is it how much is it impacting those around you, too? Right. Right. So how do you get someone to be okay with feeling that discomfort? Another great question. I mean, it's it's a larger question. So when people come to see me, so and I specialize in treating anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder. So when someone comes to see me. Part of the tr- the treatment is a lot of education 
at the beginning about helping them understand not only the process of anxiety and how it keeps them stuck, but also a lot of work around their readiness to change. Mm-hmm. You know what their what their what I call what their why is. So, mm-hmm. in other words, why is this important to them? Because it does require a lot of behavioral work or, and feeling doing things that are going to feel uncomfortable. And so they really have to know why this work is meaningful. What what are they moving toward, either in terms of, you know, goals or in terms of their values? What's on the other side for them? Mm-hmm. Because this is not work that you just jump into. This is, you know, one of my problems with, you know, influencers and social media therapy and because they make it sound very simple. Right. And they make it sound like, oh, you just do it or you just change, or you just leave them. Yeah, seven or you just... simple steps to overcoming anxiety. Like, I, exactly. trust me, I, I know what you mean. I see the same thing in my field. Like, it's if everybody, if it was this easy, everybody would be doing it. Everyone's not doing it. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it, it can be really difficult because, and I've certainly been in that situation where I get all hyped up watching these people, you know, on Instagram, you know, seeing some of these people that have no degrees and, and, and I get hyped up too. And then you go to do it and it's so hard. And then you, and then the, you know, the, you know, the best case scenario is you're like, well, that person didn't know what they were doing. But the worst case is, is that then you, you know, you feel like, you know, you screwed up. Mm-hmm. Or that you're a failure, mm-hmm. and it moves you even further away from getting real evidence-based help. Mm-hmm. So I am really, um, I am really passionate about making sure that people understand there is a process of change, and that there's a, you know, there that this what this work entails. I am really transparent to everyone with whom I work about what this involves, why this is important to them. And I take it in block, you know, building blocks with mm-hmm. my clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not sure if you know my whole backstory and why this whole podcast came about, but it started with a challenge I gave myself because I, it was the beginning of 2019. I looked back at 2018. My company had grown, but I had paid myself less than ever before. I had paid my contractors more than ever before. I made less profit than ever before. I mean, it was, and I was burnt out and tired, and I ended up you know, saying goodbye to a contractor, firing a client. Like I just, I realized looking back that a lot of problems happened because I didn't say no. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I need to learn to say no. And so I started challenging, my, challenging myself to say no to one thing every single day. It could be a little thing. It could be a big thing. It could be not answering the phone. It could be just saying no thank you in an email. It could be anything. Sure. It was really hard. And... um it wasn't until like May of that year that I really kind of got into the swing of doing it and I messed up. I hurt people's feelings mm-hmm. and I felt sick to my stomach, anxious, scared of hurting people's feelings, worried I was going to lose opportunities. Like I was very uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. so what I tell people is I challenge you to do this mm-hmm. and it's going to feel really uncomfortable and you need to be okay with that. You need to know you're going to be uncomfortable. But that's part of the process. That mm-hmm. feeling means you're learning. Mm-hmm. So I know that you talk about distress intolerance mm-hmm. or tolerance. 
Is that sort of along the same lines of you're going to feel uncomfortable and you need to learn how to tolerate that distress? Or is it a completely different thing? It, it is similar, yes. And what you're talking about and telling people is exactly the right message. Oh, well, there you go. Hey. <laughs> And we're done. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and who knew that you could be a behavioral therapist? So yes, the message is correct that we all need ideally to feel more comfortable being uncomfortable if we want to make changes. That I have no argument with that at all. We're distress. So distress intolerance or distress tolerance. This is a concept that is well known in the mental health field. Okay. And and I find it easier to explain if I talk about distress intolerance. What it is is, it's a perception that people can have that they cannot handle negative internal states. So the person will say. I can't handle feeling that way. I can't handle that sensation. I can't, oh, I don't like, I can't handle feeling poorly or I can't handle feeling bad. So I'm going to avoid. Mm. So it's a perception that you can't handle something negative and then your behavior follows. Mm -hmm. And we know in the mental health field that this is a major that if someone has this what we call personality construct that it becomes a major vulnerability for developing you know anxiety disorders substance use disorders depressive disorders because that person is going to be more likely to avoid mm -hmm and then use some kind of maladaptive coping strategy to avoid. And we also know that people stay stuck when they mm -hmm. avoid more. Mm -hmm. So we really want people, and I'm not suggesting this is the only, this is like the causal factor, but this is a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So we really wanna help people become more tolerant of distress because you cannot avoid it in life. So a lot so a lot of times what makes people have trouble becoming uncomfortable is that they hit distress and they don't know how to stay with it and how to move through it. So my work with people is helping them give them some skills so instead of trying to get rid of it mm -hmm. or eradicate mm -hmm. it I help them to just let it be there mm -hmm. and let it be there while they do what's important to them, which in your case is saying no. Yeah. I mean, my avoidance technique um, when I was super uncomfortable with it and I didn't do it was just what I called um, going along to get along. Just you know, just mm -hmm. I wanted to avoid the conflict. I wanted to avoid disappointing someone mm -hmm. and just, uh, yeah, that was my mm -hmm. my way of avoiding it. Mm -hmm. So would you say it was people pleasing? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, there is a level of that. There's a level of FOMO also because as a business owner, I didn't want to miss out on opportunities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, also, I'm just I'm always someone who's, 
you know, trying to work really hard and, you know, overachiever type. But mostly it was about people pleasing. Mostly it was, mm -hmm. I didn't, I'm a maker. I like to help people. If it was a client, I wanted to help them and mm -hmm. whatever they need, I'm there to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I find I was able to, I have been able, it's still a process. I'm still learning. I still make mistakes, but I have been more able to set boundaries and say no in the work part of my life. And I've had much more difficulty in my personal relationships because there's all those family dynamics and history and I don't want to hurt people's feelings and there are expectations. Um, yeah, it's, it's tougher. It's just tougher. Right. It shows up a lot. I see a, a lot of people that come to see me. I work with a lot of parents. So I stopped treating kids during COVID, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but I still work with a lot of parents. Mm -hmm. And parents, this can show up because it can be really hard to set and hold limits with kids. Yeah. And I see this. I work with, you know, the it doesn't matter how old the kid is. But it can be really hard for parents to set the limit with the kid for fear of that the, the child is going to be unhappy. And so it, 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 the parent feels so distressed. Will this will this break? I've heard everything. Will this break their spirit? If I tell that my child to clean their room, will this ruin the relationship? Mm -hmm. Will they hate me forever? Will I don't know that I could handle my child being upset with me. Mm -hmm. And so a large part of what I really help parents to do is to work through their own discomfort in support of the child, you know, the child's you know, autonomy, their independence, their to help with their the child's generally their anxiety disorder. So, you know, so that the child, we don't accommodate the child's anxiety. Right. I literally yesterday was at a family outing and a family member was telling us about a situation with their child and the child really wanted something to happen and it was just not the best thing for them. And so the parents set a limit and they said, there's been a lot of screaming going on, a lot of screaming they say they hate me, you know, like, and, and we're just, you know, we were just like, you're doing the right thing, mom, you're doing the right thing, just stick to it, you know, mm -hmm. but it's so hard when your kid's screaming and yelling to it, hold, hold fast on the boundary, you know? It is so hard. And I know with my three kids, it's, I can handle, and I have two daughters and a son, <laughs> and I can handle the scream, I can handle my daughter screaming that they hate me. <laughs> But it's the sad son. Oh, the silent, <laughs> the silent scowl. Or the, no, it's the, when he's upset, when I set a limit and, you know, he's ups, you know, the upset and I, I just, I, I crumble. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing him distressed. I mean, there's just, it's different with every child. And yeah. my daughters will say, you let him get away with everything and you don't let us get away with anything. And it's, you know, we just laugh. I mean, <laughs> it they do have a point. I'm, I mean, it, it is just every child is different. But, I mean, it, the way the distress hits a parent is also different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we're hardwired, right, to respond to the baby crying, right? Like, literally, yes. it's a spinal thing. Like, you feel it in your bones when your baby's screaming. Um, 
And then when your baby's 25, <laughs> they still react. So like, what do you tell parents? Like, how do you tell them to hold fast to the boundaries or define the boundaries? Or yes, how, you're right. Do you, use, do you use logic? I mean, sometimes, you know, when they're screaming and yelling, logic doesn't work. Right. Well, you have a really good point that when... When when babies, when when our children are babies, it is our job to regulate our kids emotions. And and I, you know, and I am very transparent with parents and I am a very direct therapist. I try to be very supportive, but I am also direct. Next best and so I am very the, transparent with them that it is our job when 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 our when our children are babies to regulate their emotion. But when they when they are, you know, t when they are like 18 months old, it is our job to hand that over and to teach them to how to regulate their own right. emotions. Right. So we are actually doing our children a disservice. Right. To try and regulate their emotions for them. So it is actually, you know, so it is our job to take to yes of course we are going to want to swoop in however it is our job as parents to notice that and then step back and say okay i i see you are so distressed i hear this is so hard for you and i believe that you can handle a little bit more than you're doing and my job when working with parents is to help give them the skills and the language mm -hmm. with which to do that because we're not you're not helping the child you're actually making the anxiety worse every time you swoop in right. and reassure the child or call the school and take the anxiety away or let them stay home or pick them up from school. And there's you know there's lots of evidence in the clinical literature about how accommodation from parents which is doing something to relieve the child's distress is in is not in the serve you know it makes the anxiety worse. Yeah. So the you know we have evidence-based models to work with parents to say let's work on your own anxiety because it will help your child in the long run. Yeah. Man, I wish I'd known you when my my youngest was in middle school and high school because they suffer from anxiety, um, diagnosed with um, general anxiety disorder, went through terrible depression. There were times I called the school, let let them stay home, picked them up when they were having a panic attack in the bathroom at school. Like I swooped in, I was a swooper. Uh, I was I was your classic helicopter parent. And, and through high school, they still suffered. They got less depressed, but still suffered from anxiety. And it was only when they went away to college <laughs> and mom wasn't there all the time that they were able to learn how to deal with a lot of this wow, stuff. Wow, so that's great. A light bulb though, for me. <laughs> Yes. Like, maybe I shouldn't be swooping all the time. Right. Yeah. But how great that they learned. And I was the bitch mom <laughs> and their dad that that wouldn't come and mm -hmm, had to mm -hmm. tell all the school personnel and the camp personnel, 
this is anxiety and we have a plan in place and yeah and my daughter you know she this is the plan and we're not coming to get her she's okay this is anxiety she has to figure it out but we were perceived i was perceived as the bitch mom mm-hmm. okay we'll be right back We're back with Joanna Hardis. So Joanna, you talked about having a plan um, with your teenagers. So it's, as I'm listening to to you, and as I just said, like I wish I'd met you way back when, it sounds like you're an amazing resource for parents to cope with, you know, this difficult, especially now with like social media and all the crap online and trying to help kids navigate and avoid certain things. how would you, it sounds to me like any parent could use this kind of guidance, have a plan, but especially those with kids who have anxiety or other issues. How would you advise people around the country who might not be in our area? Because if they're here, they should call you, of course. But, um, you know, how, what kind of professional should they look for if they want some help with this? That's a wonderful question. So, because not all therapists are the same. Not no. all therapists are trained in the same things. No, that is true. Right, right. That yeah. is absolutely true. So the model that I use with parents is called SPACE, and it stands for Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions. Mm. And it is an evidence-based model that came out of Yale um, with Ellie Leibowitz, and it is a model that is specifically for parents only. Hmm. And it can be used as for parents whose child is not in therapy at all. So it can be wonderful if your child refuses to go to therapy mm-hmm. or it can be used as an adjunct. So if your child is in individual therapy for anxiety, but parents need Mm -hmm. something to work on their own behavior, it can be what's called an adjunct. If parents need something to work on their own behaviors, so in space, the, the target intervention is not on the child's behavior. It is only on the parent's behavior. If that sounds like something that is appealing to parents, which Mm -hmm. I always think is helpful, and I know I had to work a lot on my own behavior with my children, they should should Google space, and they have a whole website. I can't remember what the website is, and look for providers in their area. Okay, we can look that up and put that on the show notes. That would be great. Yeah. What's important, and I am really passionate about this, is that people look for evidence-based models, Mm -hmm. not only for themselves, but for their children. So they should make sure that if their child is seeing someone for an anxiety disorder, that the person is truly using an evidence-based model Mm -hmm. for if their child has generalized anxiety disorder, that the person is using an evidence-based model for generalized anxiety disorder, that they are not, that if the child has panic disorder, that they are doing a panic disorder protocol. I see. Not some, you know, there are therapists that are specialists and there are therapists that are what we call supportive therapists. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference. Mm-hmm. And so if you know that your child or that you have something specific 
you want to make sure that you're getting an evidence-based treatment because you don't want to waste time not not making progress. Right, right. Fascinating. <laughs> I could go on and on yeah. about this, Heather. Don't get me started. So, I mean, we talked about kind of what it is and, and why it happens and um, how people get stuck. Um, are there any... And I know I don't, you know, I know this is much more complicated than give us three tips, but are there some techniques that you could share with our listeners about if they're feeling anxiety and their their instinct is to avoid whatever it is that's inducing that anxiety, like how to talk themselves through it? Is there any anything you can offer in terms of how to sit with it and be okay and move forward? You know, what I can offer up is that people get into trouble when they start judging, and I see this a lot, people get into trouble when they start judging their thoughts mm -hmm. or when they start judging how they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So I'm not in the business of just offering up, okay, here's your, here right, are right, your right. tips yeah, yeah. and go. Fair, totally but, fair. But you know, I think where people get into trouble, and this is where their relationship with anxiety or with worry, you know, sets sets the dominoes falling is that they start judging the stuff in their head. So they have a thought, you know, they have a thought and, and they judge it as bad mm -hmm. or they have a feeling they wake up and they wake up and their heart is pounding and they say, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. Mm hmm. Or they have a thought and they- Or this is a bad feeling, like something's wrong. This is a wrong. bad feeling. Something's wrong, yeah. This is a bad feeling. Or their stomach, you know, their stomach hurts and, oh my gosh, I'm sick. I'm sick. This is a sign that I should stay home from school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or they have a, a, you know, the thought pops in their, a thought pops in their head. I work with a lot of people with OCD and they, they you know, they have, we're meant to have all sorts of thoughts. We cannot control what thoughts pop in our heads. Mm -hmm. So we may have a thought that is violent. We may have weird sexual thoughts. We may have all sorts of strange thoughts, but we are constantly in the business of judging them. And that's where people start to get into a lot of trouble because they judge their thoughts. For instance, you know, say you went on a date with someone and and the person hasn't texted you back right away. He hates me. <laughs> he didn't like me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Based on what evidence? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But but they take that thought that popped in their head and they they take it as like the gospel. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that thought gets paired with some adrenaline and then they start acting on it. Right. And so and this, you know, the, the the analogy I always give with clients is like this starts the dominoes falling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so I am a huge advocate that before, you know, before we can, you know, change our behavior, we also have to slow our roll down. Oh, I'm a big believer in that. Take a pause. Yes. Take a pause. Yes. Think no quick action. Take a minute. Even in the heat of an argument, I'd be like, you know what? I need to take a break, five minute break. I need to go think about yes, this for a minute. Yes, yeah. because our initial, you know, our initial reaction is always, you know, may always be catastrophic or, you know, you know, 
bizarre or, you know, it's, it's often catastrophic or the worst case scenario or we're going to jump to some conclusion or we're going to think we're a mind reader or psychic or there's a sign from God telling us to do something. And that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And our brain is always going to predict based on what we've always done because that's just how the brain works. Okay. And so it is in our best interest that instead of just reacting, that we slow down and and we give ourselves a moment to kind of bring the level of intensity down and then decide how we want to respond to the situation and not our emotions. It sounds to me like that's how people fall into the trap of now you have I, I've had friends, I've had family members who fall back in really bad unhealthy patterns with relationships or whatever. And, it, and what you just said was our brain goes back to what we've done before, to the way we've re- reacted before. Is that part of it? Like not taking a minute to really think and absorb and just react. And if you're just going to react, it's going to be based on sure. old patterns. Yes. And I'm not a neuroscientist. But I, but my understanding, and this is Lisa Feldman Barrett's work, the brain is always going to do what's metabolically efficient it, because the brain does not want to waste, you know, it doesn't want to, it takes a lot of calories to do something new. Mm-hmm. That's why behavior change is also really hard and you have to be very intentional about it. So the brain go, it would rather just do predict what you've always done and do that and then like course correct Mm -hmm. so it's always going to just assume and do what you've always done that is fascinating and you know when people are just on autopilot and constantly reacting it's really easy to just react to how we're feeling to emotions so if we want to do something different we have to slow down and we have to be very, very, very intentional about it because it's going to take more calories. Like it's it's metabolically inefficient. So it has to take more calories. It's extra energy. It mm-hmm. literally is extra energy, mm-hmm. which is why if you're rushing around, if you're stressed out, if you haven't slept, it's really hard to make behavior change. Yeah. So it's really complicated why people do the same patterning. It's not, I mean, it is complicated and it's not, but it's very hard to get people to do new things mm-hmm. without being very, you have to be very, um, it's a very slow process. It's purposeful. Yes, I mean, you have very, to be. That's a great word. Yeah, it's very yeah. purposeful. And that's why when I was, when I was doing my one no a day, I called it finding the no, um, I kept track of it. And I really feel like it's important anytime you're trying to change behavior, you keep track of it, whether it's on paper, in an app, whatever, just something. And also make note of how you feel, what happened, you know, what was I afraid of beforehand, what really happened. uh, Yes, (laughs) that's so important. I love that you you noted that. I have clients do that. You could practically take over my work. No. No, but it's called gamification, right? And and you know the you have to t- do things over a certain period of time, uh-huh. and that finding the no, like making it a win, made it turned it from a negative to a positive. Yes, and then tracking it was just my way of being accountable to myself. Yes, and the difference between what you expect to happen and what actually happens, yeah, is so important because oh, yeah. 
you know, our anxiety, our worry is always going to say it's going to be, or our distress intolerance yeah. is always going to say it's going to be the worst. Yeah. And the reality is never, is rarely yeah. Yeah. that. As Maura says, it's always a bigger deal in your head. And to the other person, it's not a big deal. Like, right. you know. Right. <laughs> exactly. But getting someone to actually take that step. Yeah can be really hard. Once they do it, they realize it's so much easier, but sometimes getting them there can be really difficult. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we could do an hours long podcast on all of this stuff. I feel like we could too. (laughs) Yeah, so tell us about your new book and what it's about. Sure. Oh, and I have never talked about it, so you are probably the first person. Not even all my clients know about it. Oh, wow. This is probably my own distress intolerance (laughs) about it or my own anxiety. I'm forcing you. You're forcing (laughs) it. It's good. Um, So it's coming out. We're shooting for the fall. Okay, great. And it's for... And, you know, really any person, but I, I really designed it for women because I am a woman. I feel like I speak to that experience really well, mm-hmm. who feels like they're at point A, they want to get to point B, but they just feel stuck. Mm-hmm. And so it's really a guide to help them. A lot of what we talked about, how to help them get more comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's for that woman who knows they're supposed to get comfortable being uncomfortable and do, you know, do that one thing a day that scares them. But every time they go to do it, that that worry or that dread or that fear bubbles up and they quit. Mm -hmm. So I wrote the book to help give them a process to work through that and to be able to allow that discomfort. Oh, wow. Well, we'll definitely keep our eye out for that. Yes. Help. Uh spread the word once it's out. That's exciting. Thank you. Yeah. Jen has been, Jen, who we both know. Is Jen Prohaska, who you listened to on a recent episode. Yes. yes. She has been saying to me for years, you really should write a book. And I've said to her for years, I have nothing to say. Oh. I have nothing to say. I have nothing in me. Yeah, I'm sure she slapped that right out of you. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden I texted her and I said, I know what I want to say. And it just... It, it just came to me. Something I, uh, something moved me, and I just, it just came to me. Yeah. So it was the, you had to wait for the right time. I did. Yeah. I did, yeah. and something Sometimes moved me Sometimes that's how it works. It. Yes. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Joanna, for coming on. This has been fascinating. I'd love to have you back on again. I would love to. And um, I know this will help a lot of people. And how can people find you in the meantime until they read your book? Um, sure. <laughs> well, they, my website, so joannahardis.com. Okay. okay. And where they can find me on Instagram, which is same thing at Joanna Hardis. And I know you have a really helpful blog on your website. Yes. I've been reading it. Oh, know. wonderful. I'm so happy. Yeah. Yes. So those, and there's a Facebook page, but I, from my website, people can find all of my handles. I think that's what they're called. Yep. 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 <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you again. It's been just such a pleasure thank meeting you, you and so getting much. to talk to you. Fun. Thanks. Got questions or a boundary setting success story or flop? It's easy to get in touch with us. Send an email through our website, hardnopodcast.com, DM us on social, we're at hardnopodcast, or leave a message at 216 370 
3410. We'll be featuring some of our favorite questions and messages in future mailbag episodes. So get in touch. You can find show notes and a transcript of today's episode on our website, hardnopodcast.com. Make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any new episodes. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating and review, especially on Apple, so others can find us too. That's a Hard No is a production of Clever Girl Marketing, my strategic marketing agency based here in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. You can learn all about us at clevergirlmarketing.com. It's written by me, Heather Drago, and our amazing marketing and production coordinator, Mara Del Rosario. Production support, Evergreen Podcast, Noah Fouts, producer and editor extraordinaire. Our awesome new rock anthem was written by Noah and performed by his band, The Big Leagues. Love it so much. Thank you. Shout out to Jake Donnelly, the videographer and photographer who's the creative force behind our YouTube videos. You demand, Jake. You can find him at rjdonnelly.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, saying no isn't just okay. Saying no is the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. So do it. Find your no and say it unapologetically. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.